0: it's time to get real with robin join veteran broadcaster robin cote and her co-hosts known as the collective as they delve into subject matters that most are afraid to talk about but need to hear and now get ready to get real
1: trauma is not what happens to us Trauma is what happens inside us as a result of what happens to us. Unhealed trauma impacts every aspect of our lives. It shapes the way we live, the way we love, and the way we make sense of the world. It is the root of our deepest wounds. You know, when the idea of Get Real was born, it came from a place of wanting to share knowledge from people who have gone through traumatic things in life and found a way to not only survive, but to thrive and help others by sharing their journey. So many other shows out there focus on bringing in degreed professionals who lump everyone into a category. Now I'm not throwing them under the bus because those type of shows, they do have their own place in this world. But for me, it's not about the degree that hangs on the wall in the office. It's not about the fancy titles or the clinical and sterile side of things. It's not about a one size fits all solution. It's about the real, the dark, the gritty, raw emotion, the pain, the healing, and the triumph of being able to say, I am whole again. It's about the real stories and the people who fought like hell to find their way out of the darkness and into the light. I truly believe that life is our greatest teacher. Kirk and I are joined by one of the most inspiring women I have ever met, Jennifer Nielsen. Her journey is one of devastating loss, having suffered several miscarriages mixed in with turmoil in her personal life, along with the trauma of childhood sexual abuse. Jennifer found her way to healing and is giving back by helping others, not only by sharing her own story, but by showing others that they, too, Can heal from life's tough dealings. She is an emotional resilience expert and she helps others overcome limiting beliefs, traumas, and challenges in order to live a better life. It is so good to see you, Jennifer. How are you?
2: Oh, good. Thank you for that kind introduction. (laughs) No, it's
1: very true. You are one of the most inspiring people I've ever met. And we were talking off air before the show started. That it's been several years. You actually came in on, as, on a guest for a show that I was producing at the time. And to be quite honest, I didn't know a lot of your story back then. But following you over the past couple of years, I've learned a lot about you. And that's what this show is about. It's about bringing people forth who are not afraid to talk about some of the experiences they've gone through. And I recently read an article that was in a magazine about you. And... It was a little over 10 or 12 years ago that you had that definitive moment in your life when the proverbial shit hit the fan. Am I correct? Pretty much. (laughs) I think it was
2: about 12 or 13 years ago. You're right. It was, you know, you kind of went over some of it in the introduction, but it was a really dark time. And it kind of started with my dad, who was my hero, a safe place, passed away at 62 unexpectedly, and... You know, I had just talked to him that morning. Everything was fine. And that just kind of began this kind of spiral of events. And our home went to foreclosure. (laughs) It was just like one thing after another. And my husband and I were just, we were at odds. And like you mentioned, the miscarriages. There was just a lot at the same time. Dealing with just life in general is challenging. I have five kids. My oldest daughter was dealing with some severe health challenges. And I just felt depleted and disconnected and I had been seeking professional help on and off since I was married because what I would found throughout my life and not knowing I had trauma at this point is that there was such a disconnect between what people saw and then who I really was, how I was really feeling, that incongruency. And I just wanted more than that. And so it was during that time that all the memories of my childhood sexual abuse came flooding back. And it was just... It was a lot, and it was devastating, and it created quite a ripple effect in our family. And I'd always been a very um, sufficient, you know, get things done kind of a doer personality, and I just found myself kind of crashing and just wanting just to be done with life. It was too much. And the reality that my perpetrator had been around my children, my nieces and nephews, it wasn't just me that was possibly affected by him. It just... It, it was just too much to grasp and t- try to comprehend, besides the fact that I had so much deep-seated shame and pain and anguish that I physically could, I could barely take the pain that I was feeling. And then as I realized it was bigger than just me, I had sisters and cousins and other family members, that this was just this was much bigger than I even had realized.
1: So I take it your offender was a family member?
2: Definitely a family member, not blood related, which I don't know why that matters, but it kind of helps. (laughs) I don't know. But he was, I mean, our family is very close knit. So every holiday, my birthday parties, my dance recitals, I look back through my journal and he was at everything. I mean, we celebrated and did everything together. He has a daughter that's my age and we were very close. We had a, we still, there is a family ranch still. We don't, I don't go there anymore, but that was a place we'd all gather. I'd go with my own kids. I was, you know, it's as old as I am. We bought it as a big family when I was a baby. And so it's just, it's very complicated because some of my happiest memories are tainted because it was just interwoven with all this trauma. There really wasn't a separation. It was all just interwoven and just so just kind of trying to unpeel that, those layers, was just really challenging because you look back and realize that everything in your life is just, was different than you thought. And just the word tainted, again, is the first thing that, that comes to my mind when I, when I think about that.
1: How old were you when this was going on?
2: Around, I think it was right around two or three years old until I was about eight or nine.
1: The formative years. Mm-hmm. Wow.
2: I mean, and that's what's so fascinating about it is, is so much of this trauma happens. And, you know, I'm always forward thinking and trying to move, you know, through things. But the reality is when you're that young, you don't know a version of yourself without the trauma. You don't know that, okay, my eyes are brown. Oh, and I also have anxiety, depression, shame, guilt, ulcers, all of these things. I just assumed that was the way everybody felt. I didn't know how different that was and how that wasn't typical. Because that's how I had lived my entire life. So even into my mid-30s, you know, my marriage obviously was a challenge for many reasons. You know, the intimacy and then just what my husband who, you know, certain things get exposed that you can kind of, I would say, are dormant, certain triggers and certain things. And he just seemed to be my trigger all the time and it really wasn't about him. And so it did when you said in the beginning, in the introduction, it affects your relationships in every way with God, with yourself, with Your loved ones and not knowing really what was under that it was just really it just felt very hopeless
0: when did you
2: disclose your abuse so it's it was kind of a process so it came up and then another family member simultaneously had memories which was kind of I, I was kind of that, that go-to person in all of this. I didn't really choose that role, but that's kind of what happened. And so I would hear other people's accounting of their abuse, and it was as if they were telling my exact story. And
0: Is this after? My question was when. How, how old were you when you brought this to life?
2: Thirty-five.
0: Okay, so you, did, you held it in all throughout.
2: I didn't remember Okay. I remember one time I did tell my parents when I was in my like mid, maybe mid-20s, we were at lunch at Chevy's. <laughs> I says, I think this person might have molested me or abused me. And I kind of got these blank stares from my parents. And then it was like, can we get another Pepsi and some more chips and salsa, please? And that was it. We never talked about it again. So I... I had an inkling, I think. I didn't like this person. I actually hated this person. And We were taught not to hate. Like, you don't hate people, and I did not like this person. Right. So we did, me and this other family member approached him.
0: So to some degree, at least initially, and maybe subconsciously through your subconscious mind, you silenced yourself for for over 30 years.
2: For sure. And I think it's not uncommon. You statistically look at it. I think that... um, those coping skills kind of protect you, that dis- that disassociation, until you're ready to really deal with it because the pain that comes up that, that you uncover with all of that, it's it's best that you're in a position where you can work through it. And for whatever reason, my sister and I were around the same time when this came up, and so it gave me some courage to have somebody else that was doing this with me, but it still was something that I didn't really want to believe, and I still tried to minimize gravity
0: of it. Was there a time then, because it does, it does sound like the answer to my question is yes, you, it was in your subconscious mind. Like you weren't conscious of it as abuse. You said earlier, you couldn't separate yourself from the trauma, et cetera, et cetera. What was the point in time when you realized to yourself, not to anyone else, that this was abuse and what had happened?
2: In my mid thirties.
0: Okay. And then you vocalized it at that point in time
2: I had this idea that we would go to this person and he would say he was sorry we meaning
0: you and your sister my
2: sister and I would go to this person my perpetrator um he's an uncle but I just assumed that we would talk to him and he would say he was sorry and then we would never deal with it again and he would just I it didn't occur to me at that point I was rather naive that how pedophiles work I just really assumed it was just me and my sister I didn't that there was other victims so at that point of course he denied it and we were called in
0: well can I ask what were you hoping would happen (laughs) I mean honestly I, I don't say that facetiously I mean I'm wondering I think
2: it's a really good question I was so naive I just assumed that he would apologize and we would just have and have this embrace and say we're sorry and he would say he was sorry and we would just I didn't want to ripple I didn't want to like have this ripple effect in the family I didn't want to rock the boat we had very close knit family. I didn't want, and, and you know, I grew up, I have 10 kids in my family growing up and his wife was like a mother role to me. I didn't want to upset her. I didn't want to upset my cousin who was his daughter. I just didn't want to, dis- to disrupt things. And so
1: such guilt,
2: so much guilt. And yeah. I felt like I, I just, I, I just thought he would say he was sorry and that he would feel bad. And then we would just literally move on. That was what, in my naive brain, I thought was going to happen. Okay. And
0: at the time, that would have brought you a sense of closure or satisfaction or without?
2: Possibly. I just felt like we wanted to do something, and I wanted him to know that we knew. And it made so much sense based on the feelings that we always had about him. But again, I just, I really didn't understand the scope. Yeah. I mean I never had, I never knew anything about pedophiles. this wasn't something that I was educated in, and I didn't realize that they just don't it's just not one and done or two and done. It just doesn't work that way. yeah
0: well, tell me then about or explain to us the process of you go, you have this confrontation with him yeah, right I guess, I don't, I guess that's what we'd call it, and you don't get what you want.
2: Nope, not
0: tell, Take it from there in terms of. <laughs> instead of you know walking some people probably do choose to walk away and sublimate their their pain their trauma you chose a different route so tell well, us about okay. that
2: okay so it was kind of a it's really it, it took some time so we were called in by a leader of our church that was basically like he was denying it, it had been 30 plus years now almost 40 years and we were given the, the counsel to just forgive and forget, move on. And at that point, we was all... was this
0: at his instigation?
2: Yes, he went in and said, "These these my nieces who I love, you know, and I'm like, Yo, this is your way of showing love? It's a little, little warped if you ask me, but that was what happened. Okay. He even went to my counselor and tried to talk to the counselor. Okay. So he was trying Within to... Within the pur- church or outside the outside church? Outside the church. Okay. And so at that point, we did for two years. We kind of like okay, I guess it's just us and we need to forgive and move on. And that's kind of what we did. And then I felt really strongly to go talk to my another aunt, who's the sister to Creeper, is what I call
1: her.
2: (laughs) And I talked to her and I told her what had happened. And she was surprised, but like knew that there was some, you know, he wasn't very well loved in our family, but certainly they didn't think that that was happening. Well, within a week of me going to that aunt, her daughter came to her. So it was like this Pandora box just kind of opened, and that's when we realized that this was just bigger than what we had thought, and since then, many other people have come forward, but it was at that point we realized we needed to press charges, which it really probably took me two years to get the courage up to do that, because again, I was still in that guilt kind of shame mode of like, I don't want to upset people, I don't want to hurt people, and I just assumed he would just stop, and he would be nice, and we wouldn't have to, I didn't want to do this, but... Clearly, I was very misguided, and it. we ended up pressing charges, and, and then from there it took, from the time we pressed charges until we actually went to trial, it was almost five years.
0: When you say you didn't want to do this, meaning go to the police, right? <laughs> oh, I, no, okay. I did not. Mm-mm. Was that for you, or was that for everyone else?
2: I didn't want to, I just didn't want to upset people. I, didn't, I, I would say I didn't want to do it to upset other people, and I didn't really, it was really... I just wanted to figure out any other way to deal with it. Like, that was the last resort. I just felt like we could handle this in-house. But so,
0: well, let me go back to my question again. <laughs> Sorry. But did you want to do it for yourself and felt restrained by the reaction of others? Or did you just not want to do it for yourself?
2: I'm going to give you an answer, like a different answer. Okay. I did it to protect the children that I was afraid he was still abusing. Because I didn't realize until this other person came forward that there was a possibility that he was still affecting other children. So I did it to stop him from hurting anybody else. It wasn't for myself. It wasn't, which in the end, I think.
1: It was for you.
2: It, it needed to be for me, yeah. but that was not my motivation. I think my motivation was I have children that were around him, nieces and nephews, family, I church kids. I mean, he was around kids all the time. It was like Disneyland for pedophiles. He had complete access. And I realized if I didn't do something. More people would get hurt, and so I didn't go on my behalf and press charges, which now I see it differently. I'm a very different person, yeah. but it took me time to get to this place where I'm yeah. at now,
1: but you can still hear the anguish in your voice when you talk about it because that that is part of the emotional and internal struggle. It's like, am I alone in this? How many other people are involved? And when you find out there's other people involved, it's almost like you become the champion for those involved because you're older. You're stronger, you have a louder voice, and those that are silenced look at you like you are the person that's going to spearhead this and make it work, and that's, that too is a lot to take on for yourself.
2: Yes, and I think too, the, the level of responsibility that I felt, on like I felt like damned if I do, damned if I don't, Like I felt responsible not to upset this, the family dynamic, and then I felt responsible to protect these children, and either way, I just felt like people were going to get hurt, and they did. But in the end, I became very clear that this wasn't, I didn't cause this. This wasn't my doing. And it wasn't just me. I was the first one to press charges. And then fortunately, I had other family members that were able to come forward and do that. But it was was really hard. And you go and press charges. And you're more familiar with this from a legal aspect. But you go and you have this vision. You're going to go talk to the detective. And they're going to be like, thank you for... You know, protecting the citizens right. of this community. And you're basically guilt and, guilty until proven innocent as somebody who's making the accusation. It was very traumatic, revictimizing, going in and having to tell in great detail what my uncle had done to me as a three year old until, you know, eight or nine years old.
0: I think I want to back up a little bit. I think part of the point, the underlying part of my question was because I know there's people out there listening who might be a victim of abuse themselves and not have the family dynamic. And so it's that issue of wanting people to be able to stand up for themselves in different mm-hmm. situations. And I think indirectly you did that, didn't you? Yes. By going through that. And that's, yeah. the, that's the point I wanted to make earlier and didn't want to get lost in this. Because, <laughs> Thank you. Because I know that there's so many... Experience tells me that there's so many people that are out there that might not have that family situation. There might, dynamics might be completely different. There may be nobody too upset. Yeah. Could be a stranger, something like that. But they don't want to stand up for themselves. And I think, whether you realize at the time or not, I think we can concede now that you are standing up for yourself Yes, as well, yeah. Mm-hmm. And because we have to do that, and, and what Robin's question kind of leads to that, we have to be able to stand up for ourselves to show others the way, right?
2: Definitely, and I think in all of that, you know, you know, many times I would, people would, you know, make comments like you're brave and you have this courage. And in my brain, once I decided and I knew, I didn't see any other option. Like I didn't see it as a brave act or something that was courageous. But looking back now, I realized that there was options. I didn't have to, to do what I did. Not right. And I think probably the greatest gift of all of this, and we kind of talked about this before the show, is that there's like non-negotiables in my life now. And I will stand up for myself and I will speak the truth and I will use my voice even when it upsets people. And I'm not by nature a controversial, com- you know, combative person and that's not my desire, but I won't be silenced either.
1: Yeah. Well, you were silenced for too long and everyone took away your voice. I mean, you're trying to bring this up in front of your family and they're basically dismissing it. So, you know, what are you supposed to do with that? Well, and I, I mean, d-
2: dismissing might be a strong word. It just almost like nobody knew really what, because it had been so long. And I think once they realized it was more a current type thing, there, maybe there was some dismissiveness. Ultimately, people don't want their lives to be, they, to be disrupted. And I do think there was a lot of that. I felt very alone. They might think they were being supportive in some ways, but in a lot of ways, I felt very alone. It was very traumatic, and it was probably one of the hardest things I've ever had to do. It was very, very traumatic having to go through that whole process.
1: How many children did he uh, did he offend with? Do you know?
2: Oh, it's hard to say, but I would say the ones that were part of our trial there was four, and then there was another one that was part of that got separated from our trial. That was a newer newer incident, so that was separated so that's five and then I know of at least five to ten others that I know of for sure and so it was it wasn't isolated it was definitely and this is what we know and I, I'm just really careful to protect different family members because not everyone has the same level of like I'm okay talking about it but not everybody is because I don't look at it as it's not a reflection of me nor is it a reflection of his children or his, anybody in our family, what he chose to do. The only reflection I believe is of me is how we do or don't handle it. That's the only thing I had any control over, over the whole situation.
1: How many years was he given? 402 years.
2: <laughs> I always like to say that. I'm a little warped that way, but I'm like, it was a freaking battle. And that gives you kind of a scope of like the level of... The offense that he I mean and that was not everybody that was only not everybody and that was just for Maricopa County a lot of my abuse happened up at our ranch and that was a separate trial that fortunately we didn't ever have to do because he had he was convicted so I mean he was he was up to no good not a good person let,
0: let me ask you this and I don't want to get into the specifics of the trial because I don't necessarily think that that's teaching Mm-mm. other than the processing, I'm curious about the processing from the day you decide to go into the detective and the day that he's convicted.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: I want to, I hope you could speak to what that did for you in terms of healing that trauma. Because the specifics to me don't mean as much as yeah. as the process. because what people really need to do when they have traumas of this nature is heal from them, as, yes. as Robin said in the introduction. So could you talk about what what I would call standing up for yourself in, in terms of going to the police, in terms of testifying at trial, everything, whatever you did, how that helped process the trauma as opposed to the sublimation of it you were doing in, before you went to the police?
2: Okay, so again, I'll answer your question, but kind of an my perspective on that is first of all it was empowering it was there was a level of like validation that people believed me and that he ended up getting convicted all of that was important and to know that he would no longer hurt anyone else right but ultimately what i would tell people if you're listening you can't base your healing it cannot be contingent on an outcome you can't control so for instance after he was convicted People would say to me, okay, you can finally heal now. I bet you feel so good. And I'm like, well, if my healing was contingent on that and he didn't get convicted, would I not be able to heal? Would I have to just sit with this forever? And so I think to to kind of answer your question, there is beauty and growth and strength that comes from doing what, what had to be done, what I did. But my healing journey began long before right. I, I went and, and you know, pressed charges and it's still going. And the real victory wasn't the 402 years. The real victory is that he didn't break me and that I was able to come out stronger and a healthy marriage with happy children. And I have a business now where I get to help people overcome their challenges and their traumas. I mean, that's the victory to me. Because the fact that we got that conviction, knowing what I know now and the research that I've done and the experiences I've had with people coming to me that are trying to do the same thing, it's really hard. It's like the statistics of those abuse cases that are even reported are just like three out of four don't get reported. And I think like a one or 2% of those, you would probably know better the statistics than I do actually get a conviction. It's really hard to get a conviction, not to steer people away from it, but it's just the reality is, is it's really it's when it becomes the he said, she said type of situation. It's, it's challenging. And, but I think ultimately the goal and the desire for anyone who's listening, who's been through this, is take care of yourself first, because if you're not in a healthy, healed place, whether or not they, you get a conviction is not going to heal you. It it will be a relief, it'll be it's, it's it's a good thing, but in in the case that maybe you don't get that conviction, you don't want to rob yourself of your healing because well, of
0: that. Well, and and that really wasn't what I was. Asking, um, I was asking the process of standing up for yourself. Yeah, that's what I'm talking about the the psychological growth or metaphysical growth or whatever term you want to use, spiritual growth that comes simply from standing up to your for yourself. Because I think that's something, whether it's molestation or anything else, that a lot of people can identify with because they sublimate. They don't want to stand up to their boss. They don't yeah. want to stand up to their their abusive spouse, whatever it is, right? It's the same in many ways in, in terms of the processing of the trauma.
2: Yeah. Well, I think because it was all happening, I, I felt like my healing and then the trial all happened simultaneously. It is kind of hard to separate it for me. But ultimately, having done what I did and going through that, it does. it did teach me, and I think it, it was that you can do anything and as hard as it was that 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 being able to stand up for myself and then i mean it's changed who i am i mean i i'm i'm a very different person than i was pre-trial pre-remembering this abuse so it it does something in a way that and it doesn't have to, it wouldn't have had to have been such a big thing to right. get that kind of what you're talking about because i feel like there was a lot of areas of my life I didn't stand up for myself in. This was just like a big, obvious one. Right. But I look back now and I realize that I did this in a lot of ways. And so that's that's not how I operate anymore. I, it, it has changed so much of who I am. And the people that love me and know my intentions are good embrace it. And my husband's very supportive. And, I mean, it's just, it's worked really well, but there are relationships that are different because I'm different. And so... You just get to decide who you keep around and who right. you don't, and that's okay. That
0: happens naturally as we evolve. Yeah. And one of the other points, and I don't know how, if you work with uh, offenders or victims of abuse, much sexual abuse at all, but one thing I noticed in working with those people in those cases is that so many times the victim becomes the perpetrator because they don't stand up for themselves or they become... Uh, a perpetrator of something else they become a perpetrator they're they're addicted to drugs, they're prostitutes, they're whatever because of this trauma which they never stood up to and that's why I wanted to talk about that point about standing up to it and processing trauma because trauma and you've experienced this based on what you've told us you you hit it, you tucked it away in a in a metaphysical Tupperware container inside you and didn't deal with it. It manifested itself in different ways, but you didn't deal with it. And then when you came forward, you opened that container. And because I'm one who always believes that feelings are there to be felt, to be Mm -hmm. experienced, because that's the only way they can process through them. And I think, to me, that's what I'm garnering from what you told me, from your process of going in the detective all the way to the end of the trial, because you dealt with all the feelings that were surrounding every bit of your abuse. And I think that's something you should be applauded for, but it's also, I think, something that I hopefully direct other people in terms of processing their drama as well.
2: And I think that's a really good clarification because then whether or not you get the conviction that you want, the real beauty is in that healing process that happens only when you deal with things. Cause I mean, I read a book years ago, feelings buried alive, never die. Yeah. <laughs> but I, I, I mean, I do energy work. I'm a coach. I, I train other people to do coaching. I work around this. I do a lot of this. My volunteer work is with victims of sex trafficking. So I'm around this kind of, I have these conversations quite regularly, but not dealing with it causes all sorts of physical challenges. It causes all sorts of autoimmune disorders and, so knowing that the value is is there in so many ways to deal with it, and the cost is too high to not deal with it, and it's hard, it's uncomfortable, but I believe in productive discomfort. You're gonna you we're uncomfortable anyways, usually as human beings, right. but leaning into that productive discomfort and dealing with things and not running from it is really really essential for your healing, for your growth, and so it. Just because it's hard, and just because you're not maybe supported by everyone in your family or your loved ones or in your in your your community, doesn't mean that it's wrong.
0: No, I agree with that, and and certainly under much different circumstances, I felt that way. You know, after the Arius trial and standing up to her and and so much criticism, so that it is, um, there is a great catharsis in standing up for yourself, and it opens up not only. Um, you know it opens up possibilities it opens up you it opens up you know your connection to yourself you talked about before you did that and you talked about it almost seemed like you were you were wearing a mask for 30 something years before. 100% yeah. yeah because you weren't you know I was like okay what exactly were you hiding and so I think it's really great because then that who we are and who we present as and who we are internally become one and in that connection there's so much power and I think you found, have found that it seems.
2: Absolutely, and I think that is, when I look at everything I had to go through, I'm so grateful to as where I'm at today. I don't know that I would have went to those dark places of my soul if I didn't have to. But being where I'm at now, I am grateful to be in this place where I love who I am, and I'm not afraid to stand up. I'm not afraid to say what needs to be said. I I still don't love always some opposition I might get, but I do know that the, the pain of not doing it is much greater than the pain I might get from opposition or resistance from people or the discomfort of doing it. So
1: I would agree because I understand that philosophy and it's difficult. I mean, especially when you write a book that involves family members and what's been done and what hasn't been done, how you have to put yourself out there and open yourself up And it's difficult because for those of us that finally find our voice, because we've been silenced for too long, we face the judgment. And the guilt finally gets out of the picture. But as human beings, we worry about the judgment. And family is the worst offender of that. And they hold your feet to the fire if you talk about the stuff. I mean, because generations ago, anything that happened like this was kept quiet You weren't allowed to talk about it because you're the black sheep of the family. You brought shame on the family. We don't want to hear about it. And, you know, like your situation, talking about that with your parents at the restaurant and saying it, me at 17, going home after being raped and telling my father and my mother, my mother just sat on the couch and did nothing. And my father just said, were you drinking? I said, well, I had a sip of beer. He goes, well, then you deserved it. And when you do that to your children and you silence them, How are they supposed to say anything? And, you know, I lost a child in a different way than you lost several children. You miscarried. I had a a child basically ripped out of my arms and given away from my ex-husband did that. But I couldn't go to my parents and say I was pregnant because they never heard my voice. And we don't realize just how important it is to listen to our children's voices and Yeah, sometimes they may say things that don't make sense or, you know, as we had talked off air, sometimes people do get wrongly accused of things. But what does it hurt to look into something? What does it hurt to listen to your child when they have a concern? And I think it's really a bad thing that, you know, families want to just shove everything under the rug. And I understand, let's keep it private. But if it's causing that much damage to your children, What is our job as a parent? Our job is to guide our children, to help them, to love them unconditionally, to do things with them and for them, and to teach them right from wrong. And if we're told that our voice doesn't matter, that's a hard place to be.
2: I, you know, as you were saying that, I was thinking about, I know you have a son, right? Mm -hmm. And what, what comes to my mind and in the way that I parent is that the idea of breaking these cycles of of how we respond how we how we you know show up for our children how we show up just in the world and i think about like what what kind of mom are you now to your son like you've broken the cycle because mm-hmm. you you are different and that's really in the end the best thing that we can do is to break the cycle and show these other generations there's a different way of doing it and i know that my kids like we have a very close relationship and i'm a very different mom than I would have been had I not have gone through this. And I think allowing all of us, I think we all wanna just be validated for who we are, even if it's not necessarily the version of ourselves that maybe we think we should be our kids. I want my kids to be who they want to be. And I think based on what you were saying is you've been able to offer that now to your son, something that wasn't offered to you. And that's beautiful and that's powerful.
1: He goes to the extreme sometimes, especially on social media. He is extremely outspoken. But the one thing I did teach him is that your voice will always be heard with me, no matter what it is, good, bad, or indifferent. I know you're not perfect. You are a human being. You're going to make mistakes. I'm always going to love you no matter what. And, you know, he calls me as mad as mom and dad because his (laughs) his dad's been out of the picture since he was five. And I'm grateful for that because his dad was not a good man. And he knows that. And... Where we see the cycle being broken, I'll tell you is like a few months ago, he was over at the house helping me seal up the shed. And he said to me, he goes, you know, my father had just died and my son looked at me, he goes, Mom, I hope my children never look at me the way you and Uncle Bruce, which is my brother, look at your parents. And I said, you know what, Jeff? That is never going to happen because you are an amazing father, you're very hands on, you listen to them. You do things with them. And the thing is, is they absolutely adore you. There is a huge difference. And that's when I see that all the hard work, all the trauma, all the healing, it comes out in the next generation. It comes out in, the, in our children because we see who they become as adults. And I always thought about this. I mean, my parents basically were, they were still together. But it's like when I was eight years old, it's like everything just shut off. She wanted to be with babies all the time, and basically we were on our own. You know, we didn't, I didn't know how to be a girl. I didn't know how to be a young girl. I always hung around guys, so I felt like I was more like the guys. And it was debilitating to me growing up as a teenager and a young woman not really understanding the bond a mother and a daughter share. I don't have that. I, li- You know, she lives with me now. I am taking care of her. And as Kirk has reminded me, it's more about being a human being and doing kind things to other human beings, regardless of the bad relationships we have or the no relationship we have. It's about doing those things because if I were to leave her on her own, she would not survive. But then again, we're repeating that bad cycle all over again. So as a human being, I have to be the one to say, Whatever happened in the past, you've been forgiven. I can't forget it because I've learned from it as you were talking earlier, Jennifer, about learning from those things. But, you know, when I look at the whole situation, I know that I did what I felt was right at the time and I'm able to do exactly what you're talking about. You know what your limitations are. You know what your boundaries are. And you know what you will and won't accept, who you want in your life and who you don't
2: and i think as as an adult now you get to make that choice so her living with you is not out of obligation or duty it's because you're choosing that and i think there's a big when when you you know do things in that place instead of it's cuz it's my mom or i need to do it or i should do it the have's, you know it it creates a different dynamic because it's on your terms and i think that is a to me that that generosity and that and then being able to forgive is is such a gift for yourself, but it also allows you to do something that would have almost seemed impossible probably at one point in your life.
1: It is impossible sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> and there's there's days she will test me because it's almost like she's reverting back. And instead of, and I've tried to help her through this, and I think I'm just too close to the situation. She will not listen, but she's still in the victim mindset. At 81, she still hasn't gotten out of the victim mindset because it gets attention for her and you know, none of the grandkids come around. Um, her, other, her son, you know, I live there, so she sees me every day, but she will get on the phone with her sister or anybody that comes to visit. My daughter goes in her room when she gets home. She doesn't talk. I mean, it's literally, I'm being gaslit in front of people to be drawn into this. And there was a point where I used to react, but, you know, you teach people this type of stuff, the emotional, how you react and act towards things. I finally saw it crystal clear and it's like, I can't react to this. I have to shut my emotional down and just walk away because if I get pulled into that, it's an action reaction situation and it becomes so unhealthy and toxic for me. And, you know, I'm grateful that I can get out of the house and go work. This is my sanctuary here in studio. And there's days when I work a 12 hour day, I go home, I say hi briefly, and I go in my room and shut my door, and that's my sanctuary. You have to set those boundaries. And I I have friends all the time that talk about their bad relationships with their parents and how they don't contact them or see them for several months. And they ask me, well, how do you do it? It's like you have to find that place to shut it off in your mind and ignore what they're saying. She will try to bait me continuously and, you know, it's not that you love or hate, it's you become indifferent to it. And you just learn I to just sh- look at it as neutral is what I try to do with a lot yeah. of my
2: relationships. Yeah,
1: I mean, you talk about this in, in the work that you do with let it glow and everything glowing from the inside out. We have to get to that point where we can't let someone bait us into something that's going to be toxic and create this emotional warfare that we're fighting against. And it's a losing battle, especially when you're dealing with narcissistic people who are in the gaslighting phase you know poor me poor me you did this to me and I try so hard to empower her and it's pointless I I'm kind of like out of options so I just go back to living my life and the last time we got into it I said I can't help you with what you're doing because I've already told you it requires you forgiving yourself for everything that's happened and you need to just move beyond and enjoy the rest of your life and all I got was I can't so, you know you can you just choose not to. How do we work with people to get them unstuck like that i mean that that's something you do all the time is to get them unstuck from those victim trauma mentalities
2: well it it has to be their decision though it's just I really strongly believe in the power of choice, and i mean it's it's something that we have to choose, and we have to keep rechoosing. It's not just choosing yourself one day then you've got that checked off your list. It's a constant thing and i you have to realize too, with your mom and a lot of people, their identity kind of becomes that victim. That, that's almost our identity, and they get attention from that. And there's those drama connections, and you got the drama triangle. You got—I mean, it's just drama. And it's just the only thing I believe in those situations. You can do is just protect yourself, have live with a level of integrity, and in how you respond because you are accountable for the way you respond. But just create that space because, I, like, for me, I, my husband will laugh. He's like, oh, I'm so glad I'm not a couch because I, I always say everything's optional. I look at everything in my life as optional. But I say that not loosely because when I choose something, I'm choosing it. I'm choosing to be married. I'm choosing the roles that I take. I'm choosing the people in my life. And I think it just goes back to your mom gets to choose. You get to choose. And living with your mom, I mean, you're putting yourself... In you know, kind of in that space where you have to do a lot of mental gymnastics, but again, you're choosing that, and just know that we can't do the work for other people. It just doesn't. It just it just that does not get. That doesn't do anybody any
1: good. So, I felt really good telling her that a few weeks ago, <laughs> because I told her I'm not responsible for her choices that she made in her past. And if she continues to live in the past, she's just going to destroy her, her life. She needs to learn to live in the present. And it's I just can't understand how someone can hang on to 80 years of nonsense. And I never had a chance to. I, I never had a chance to let my traumas affect me that way. But they came out in other ways. Like you guys were talking earlier, I would give myself away, you know, friends with benefits. That's the best way to put it. I would give myself away without even thinking about it because I trusted these people as friends, but then I allowed that to happen. And as I've gotten into my early 50s, it's like, you really gave yourself away way too much. And I thought it was the best thing for me at the time because it was non-committal. It didn't get in the way of raising my son as a single parent. And I was allowed to have the career and the son be the priority over any man in my life. But as I've gotten older, I realized that was just me acting out because of the trauma. And it took a lot of work to get to that point. You know, you you have to peel yourself back. The onion layers are just ridiculous when you finally get down to the nitty gritty of it all. And you realize that even though things happened, again, we're letting it affect us. And a lot of times we're not even realizing it because it's subconsciously in the back. And you know, like what you were talking about, there's so many people that have gone through sexual abuse, traumatic stuff when they were young that that stuff doesn't even surface till they're in their mid to late 40s or even 50s, and they're like, whoa, what do I do with this? Oh, definitely, yeah.
0: I was curious as we get close to the end here, Creeper, you call him, right?
1: (laughs) I have a few names. Okay, well, we'll we'll use that
0: one. Um,
1: (laughs) I like it. I don't
0: know that this is a family show, but we'll use Creeper. Um, Did you ever get the apology that you were seeking when you first went to him seeking it?
2: Well, what do you think? <laughs> I would say no. <laughs> no. In fact, at the, we had our vict- victim's advocate, our victim's, what is that? The victim statement at the very end? Oh, the victim, victim impact. Impact, impact. Sorry, statement. Yeah. victim yeah. impact yeah. statement. Yep. He asked the judge if he could turn and address the audience, us, and he wouldn't let him. But um, he pretty much did like a 30, 40-minute.
0: Well, that's not a victim impact statement. That's, we, a, that's his sentencing We did story. our victim okay. impact statement right. first. At and sentencing, then,
2: yes. At sentencing, and then he was able to give his right. impact statement after our victim impact right. statements, whatever that's called. But, oh, no, it was just like, you guys are on christ like you blah, 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 blah. And really, basically, the judge, in the end, because they have to be very neutral, as you know, as an attorney, mm. and he's, he just, in the end, was like, wow, I've never seen anybody use their religion as a sword to hide behind and to 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 wound And to to cause damage, because that's really what he did. He used religion. He used our naivety, the family dynamic, as a way to hide behind that. And in the end, I mean, he was just, the things that he said about all of us at his last moment. And one thing I didn't mention, which I think is kind of an important thing, is he was arrested right before he actually went to jail for soliciting a homeless man in Mesa to get him children, because he'd been cut off from his access to kids so when you realize that like in our like this is a man that it wasn't just this this went far beyond just even our family Right. and even with him being caught with his literally his hand in the cookie jar still would never admit it ever let
0: let me ask you this Um, if it came today in the form of a letter or what have you a sincere apology would it mean anything to you
2: you know, I feel like forgiveness is a lot like some of the other things I talk about. Like, I would hope I'm already moving towards that. I think I am as, the best I can as a human being. It would probably be nice, but wouldn't really change anything. Because in the end, he's sitting in prison, and he's going to die a lonely man without really anybody in the world to even... I mean, he has, he's alone. He's... like. I'm just grateful I'm me, and in the end, I feel like I fared much better than he did. And so an apology, a sincere letter, I mean, I guess there would be some value to that. But knowing the kind of person he is, what it, the way his brain works, I don't know that there's a capacity for that kind of authenticity, sincerity, reflection. And I don't know that it would change much.
0: Yeah, I th- I th- and I think that's good because I think it's indicative of healing when we don't need the validation of others, particularly those that have hurt us. And I think, so that's why I wanted to ask that question to see um, where you were on your healing journey.
2: Yeah, no, I think that's a really beautiful thing to point out because I'm so grateful that I'm in a place where I don't, like that was even what I said in my impact statement is, I'm just glad I'm not him. You know, you, you talk about, can one person make a difference? I think this is an example where you can see one person can cause a lot of harm, but one person can make a difference. And I'm going to be that person that will make a difference in the many people's lives based on what happened to me. So there is a level of satisfaction because of that, that I won't give him any more power in my life, any more headspace in my life. Like I just, you know, I'll work through things as they come up, but it just doesn't happen as much anymore just because my desire is to move forward and, and to be happy and whole and healing and. Help other people do the same. So,
0: well, that's awesome, and Robin, I I, I think it's just it's it's just powerful to hear your voice uh, and uh, to hear your words, and um, I appreciate you coming here and being so honest with us. And I didn't call you Robin by accident. I was looking at yeah, Robin. he was Wondering looking if she at me. Had anything to say?
1: <laughs> oh, I knew. I could. I could tell.
0: All right. Well,
1: <laughs> I'm. Yeah. Ju- I'm just. You know, when I met you several years ago, I. I didn't know your story, and I see a difference in you from that day when you came in here and was on that show to today. I see a huge difference in your journey, and I'm just grateful that you're not afraid to use your voice and to share what you've been through because there are so many of us out there that go through these trials and tribulations, these traumas that just keep us prisoner because of the guilt, because of the worry that we're going to destroy the family. It's a common thread I see in every one of these situations where childhood trauma happens. We're afraid to speak up, and we're silenced, and it shouldn't be that way. We need to be able to speak up, be believed, be understood, and be heard. That, to me, is the most important thing in the world is to be heard.
2: I agree, and I think opportunities like this and having other people advocate and just it's a collective effort to create this kind of awareness because there is a lot of stigma attached to it. And I think in the end, I think we all want that level of safety. And we, like, I, I, the word disruption has come up a few times today. But really, I, I think that's what stops us a lot of the times is we'd rather live in our comfortable misery than the unknown. And you talk about this imprisonment. I feel like so often we keep ourselves in these self-imposed prisons And yet, we have the key, we're our own jail wardens, and we don't realize it. And so, my mission and my purpose is to show people how to free themselves. I call myself a liberator. I want to help people, I want to liberate people. That's just like, and being able now, I have this process I use called the dig that I've been able to help many, many people uncover their trauma and work through things and find resolution. And now, for me, the chair on the Sunday is I get to train other people to help do this same kind of healing work and empowering and this, you know, these liberating. And so my vision is just to help as many people as I possibly can on this earth. And I'm seeing that unfold in a way that is pretty remarkable and it's exciting. And it does give me that sense of purpose to all the pain and all the heartache that I went through, because I will never stop. I will be doing this until I take my last breath. I will be advocating, supporting, helping other people find the freedom, their voice, the peace that I myself didn't have for a very long time that I thought wasn't even a possibility for me. Because no matter what you've gone through, and I'll just speak to specifically to the listeners that um, I know pain and I know you know pain. We can't avoid it in this life. That is just the reality. And just because maybe your pain is different than mine doesn't mean it's any less painful. I mean, pain hurts. And so I just wanted to challenge you. And to help you understand that even though the pain in our life, we can't avoid it often times and it's out of our control. But the level of suffering and chaos and drama that you allow into your life is optional. That is something that you do have power over. So do what you need to do to get the help that you need so that you can be the architect of your life, so that you can determine the quality of your life. And instead of just taking the life that was handed to you, you have the power To do anything that you decide you want to do. And it doesn't mean it's easy. It doesn't mean it's without resistance. But it is worth it. And you deserve everything that your heart desires. That that you deserve it all. And it's going to take a level of you committing to yourself. And we've talked about standing up for yourself. But just know that whatever that looks like for you. It is worth it.
1: And I always say you can turn your hurting pain into healing pain. Because once the hurting is over, then it's on to the healing. And it's still painful, but it's a much better journey than staying stuck in the hurting pain. So how can people find you?
2: So the, probably the easiest way is on Instagram. So Jennifer Nielsen, J-E-N-N-I-F-E-R, Nielsen, N-I-E-L-S-O-N. And then I also have a website, um, Jennifer-Nielsen, same spelling. Um, and then I, that can lead you to my dig page where I talk about how you can become a dick specialist and help people in this, this mission that, that I'm so passionate about, but just, yeah, those are the just two quickest ways to probably be my website and my Instagram.
1: You know, I sit here and look at you and you really are an inspiration. You are a shiro, <laughs> A shero. I like a shero. that. A shiro. We don't so call you. <laughs> we don't call girls heroes. We call them <laughs> sheroes, but I'm really grateful that you came in and joined Kirk and I today in this discussion. So thank you so very much, Jennifer. Well, yes, thank you for thank the you opportunity.
2: Jennifer. I really enjoyed just sitting here and just having this discussion. So, well,
1: you are a member of the worldwide collective because you are making a difference, even when you don't feel like you are. Just know <laughs> that you are. We are watching, we are learning, and we are listening. So, thank you for that. And as always, guys, remember to take care of yourself because you are important. And uh, we will see you next time.
0: Thanks for listening to Get Real with Robin. Join Robin Cote and her co hosts, known as The Collective, each week as they delve into subject matters most are afraid to talk about, but really need to hear. Join us next week here on Star Worldwide Networks as we continue to get real.